Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Hey everybody, good to see you here tonight, amen? (laughs) Um, And it's really my privilege to be able to teach you. um, For those of you who have never sat in a Bible study with me, uh, um, hopefully I'm a lot better than I was 10 years ago, but it's been about 10 years. But the reason why we're here tonight and why... um, I teach the scriptures to you is because I want your roots to go down deeper. Um, I want you to understand the scriptures. If, you, if you're not used to a Bible study, I hope you have a Bible. I do cross-referencing, which means I'll go to other verses and come back to back up something I'm saying or to give you wider angles on thoughts like that. So if you take notes, good for you. Go back over that. But it's my hope and my prayer because as we look around, as I look around anyway, maybe, maybe you don't see it that way, but... I see a world that's very, um, Christian world, that's kind of shaky and very biblically illiterate. Does anybody understand what I mean? It's like they really don't know some things they they just should know. And so it's my heart to do this. And so when Charlie, Pastor Charlie Bacar, Pastor Dylan Duncan, my son, they said, we we think, you know, you should go back to this and do this besides the small groups. I I was ready to roll. They brought this up to me back in October. I said, yeah, just point me, and, and, and I'll do it. So I really enjoy this, and, um, and when I had that episode this last week that I talked about Sunday, right? Remember that? I mean, it made me really, I, I really was shook, okay? And it made me really think even more so of what my purpose is and the few things that I do very well and the things that I'm not good at, just stay away from it. How many know, you've been here a long time, Jim Del Campo should not organize anything at all. How many know that? <laughs> Yeah, thank you for hurting my feelings out there. But it is a fact of life. You, you just don't want me to organize a thing because you will be so let down and you'll feel like I did it on purpose. I didn't, okay? I just think in my head that you know these things already. I don't have to communicate it. So I'm not good at organization whatsoever. But this thing I can do pretty good. So we're going to begin the Gospel of John, which is uh, a great gospel. Now, as I begin, I want you to think about this. Have you ever noticed that businesses have purpose statements? Yes or no? Yes, they do. And I wrote a couple of them down, like Walmart. You know what Walmart's purpose statement is? It's not the one in the commercial, but what their purpose statement is. Their statement is this. We save people money so they can live better. I thought that's a pretty good statement. Chick-fil-A's, how many like Chick-fil-A? I like Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A says, and I like theirs, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us. And that's a great statement, too, to follow. See, a purpose statement is something that states your obvious purpose. Everything you do in life funnels through that purpose. And if you think about your life as a believer in Christ, you should take your purpose from God himself, from the scriptures. What is your purpose in life? Now, with that said, did you know the Gospel of John has a purpose statement in it. There is a purpose statement built into the Gospel of John, why John even wrote this thing. And by the way, if someone ever tells you why are there four Gospels, here's your answer. Wrong. There's only one Gospel, good news, and there's four different perspectives on that. Amen to that one? Always answer it like that because they're going to try to shift you here and there all over the place. Now, think about purpose and a purpose statement. Do you remember when... When Jesus, uh, John the Baptist, is in prison and he sends his own personal disciples to go talk to Jesus, and Jesus is his cousin. And now, John, who baptized Jesus, 
He's now questioning whether Jesus is really the Messiah. Remember that story? It's Matthew 11. And so they get there and they ask Jesus this question. Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? Jesus doesn't go, yeah, I am. He doesn't say that. He says, look at what, notice what you see and what you hear me do. Look, the, the lepers are cleansed, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What did Jesus just tell those disciples of John? He gave them his purpose statement. All you have to do is go back to Luke chapter 4 when Jesus stands in that synagogue and opens a scroll of Isaiah and he reads from Isaiah the purpose statement. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, etc., etc. Jesus gives a purpose statement. And so we should have purpose statements in our life, especially as believers. John has a purpose statement. Do you want to see where that's at? Keep your finger always in John 1 now. Then go to John chapter 20 as we intro this book here. Now watch this in John chapter 20. In John 20, um, you're going to find, and look at verse 30. We'll read verse 30 and we'll read verse 31. And boy, do I love to hear the sound of Bible pages shifting. So many phones now, they shift in the phone, it's like, I don't hear that anymore, and I really like this. Um, in John chapter 20, verse 30, watch what John writes, 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of, his, of the disciples, which are not written in this book, in this gospel. But these have been written, here's the purpose statement of his letter. But these have been written so that you may, say it, believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, say believing, believing, you may have life in his name. Now he gives you the purpose statement. You know what the purpose statement is? You could, you could put it in this nutshell. It's simply persuasive evangelism. The whole goal of John is so you have something to bank on, to put your teeth into, that you can use as persuasive evangelism so that people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I had you say the words believe and believing, because John, when he uses that word, it's the Greek word pistis or pisteo, and it goes, it's way beyond, oh, I believe there's a God, or I believe God, or I believe in God. It's way beyond that. That's not even close to what it actually means. When he uses that word there, and by the way, in the Gospel of John, he will use that word around 98 times. So you understand that as he's writing, he knows his purpose statement, and he knows what he's putting in as he goes along. He's making a clear point about what it means to believe. It's, the word means to trust. It means you're all in. It means you jump in both feet first. You're jumping the deep end of water. It means that you're joined to something. Now, I perform weddings, and I perform, I, I don't even know how many I perform. But anyway, whenever there comes to that moment in the wedding, I take them through the vows. Then I take them through the I do's. Then I take them through the rings. I take them, and there's all these statements of commitment, of joining together with that person. They're jumping all the way in now. Let's take it from a male with their bride. Are we not the bride of Christ? Now, personally, I don't like that statement. I don't want to be anybody's bride, if you know what I mean as a guy. But it's the statement, and I understand it. It's a jump all the way in statement. You see, when I married Olivia, when she won the lotto, but when I married Olivia, 
Um, I was 25. She was 24. At age 23, I bought my house back then when things were like dirt cheap. When I said, I take you as my bride, guess what she got besides me? Say it louder, ladies. She got the house because it's all the way in, right? We're, we're, we're joined together. Now it was her house. Now, that means I surrendered everything. Everything that I have is hers now. Everything that I am is hers now. And that's what marriage is. When you take the word believe, and this is where Christians need to settle it once and for all. When you jumped in, you jumped in all the way. And if you didn't, you need to settle it and jump in all the way. Everything you are, everything you own, everything you have belongs to God. You've just surrendered it all. Here's one of the great illustrations I've ever heard about this. And it's so simple. I thought, why didn't I think of this? We've all seen The Wizard of Oz, correct? Yeah, and I'm a movie guy, but I should have thought of it, but I didn't. But when, remember when Dorothy is there in Munchkin Land? What's the one thing they keep repeating to her? Louder? Follow the yellow brick road. You should have said it right, okay? Don't say it in your own voice. Follow the yellow brick road. And, and every time, follow the yellow brick road. And then they start singing the song, follow the yellow brick road. Now, what are they telling her? No matter what happens, you're going to run into a witch. You're going to run into flying monkeys. You're going to run into those apple-throwing trees. No matter what you run into, guess what? What do you do? Follow the yellow brick road. And in our life, when we firmly placed our belief in Christ, we're all the way in, we're joined. It doesn't matter when spooky things come our way. It doesn't matter when flying monkeys irritate us and circumstances go wrong, correct? It doesn't matter if Satan starts pelting us with whatever. We stay on the yellow brick road. We follow him. That's what it means. That's what he's saying. Believe. You stay right in there and you don't veer off. I've been Christian 42 years. I've watched too many people come and go, come and go, come and go. Things go wrong and they're gone for a couple years. They come back. I'm glad they come back. I'm glad. But you never had to leave in the first place. You never had to walk away. You stay on the yellow brick road. Now, John is writing that people may believe. Do you know one of the names or what, what uh, theologians and people call the gospel of John? They call it the book of the seven signs. Because as you go through it, you're going to find there are seven signs, seven statements, seven signs. The greatest of them and the final one is when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then he proves it by what? Raising Lazarus from the dead. So you're going to see these signs that are going all through this book. And so when John uses that word sign, it, the word literally means semion or semiotic. It's the idea of giving meaning to something. So when Jesus makes a statement, those great I am statements, he's going to do something after that that gives meaning to his statement. And I like that a lot. Now, can I share with you, before I read the first verse of John, go back to John 1, can I share with you something really groovy? Some of you young people go, what did you just say, Jim? It's a 60s term, okay? This is a real psychedelic thing I'm going to share right now. Okay, it's boss. It's boss, okay? Okay, I've, I've dated myself three times, all right? Okay, let me, let me just share with you this. And there's another one in about two weeks, or maybe four weeks, that's going to be even better than this one. That's just so cool as you study a book. 
The first section, not the first chapter. The first section of John begins in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So it begins with the Creator, right? We know in John 3, He's going to create everything. But in John 2.11, which is, near, is the end of the first section of John, we find Jesus going to a wedding at Canaan, correct? So think about the first section. It starts with the Creator and creation. It ends with a wedding. Think about your Bible. Genesis 1 starts with the Creator and creation. And then Revelation 19 ends with a, ends with a wedding. So you see this cool picture in John, the way John's writing, and it correlates to your entire Bible. Can I give you two neat things about that that I like? No? Yeah? Okay, yeah, okay. At home, they're watching, but they didn't want it. No, I'm just joking. Here's what's neat about it. He starts with creation and the creator creating all things. Then he gets to the wedding, which encompasses Genesis 1 to Revelation 19. If you think about what he's saying, you and I, he's talking about history, you and I are part of a massively great story, are we not? A story that begins in Genesis 1 and ends in Revelation 19. We're part of that story. Here's what I like. You and I may not be the most well-known person in this life. We may not have achieved quite what we want. Things might have gone a little bit wrong here and there, but we're still part of the greatest story that there is and it's the biggest story and you need to remember that that that's an ongoing story now that's not the only thing about that because when we get to the wedding part of it um think about that get to the wedding is a okay let me say it this way um brenda you were there and you guys invited uh, uh olivia and i three weeks ago to go to vegas to perform the wedding for your daughter and, and um it, it, it was a lot of fun now so i so i go there to perform the wedding. <clears throat> and and um, you know what I did? Uh, I, we left Corona, and I'm driving. I get to Limonite Avenue on the 15, and I forgot my wedding book. You know what that feels like inside? I had to go back to the house and get it. Guess what? I couldn't find it anywhere in the house. And now I'm freaking out because I got to be in Vegas, not in time for the wedding, but I wanted to get uh, uh, this gumbo soup inside the Orleans. And I wanted to get there before because <laughs> it's really good. And so I finally, they had to redo one for me at the office. And, and then when I came home, somebody found it right underneath my table in the house. I was like, wow. But anyway, we go there and I perform this wedding on the pitcher's mound at night. I've never done a wedding on a baseball field. It was really cool. The way they did all the chalking and everything in their names, it was beautiful. And so when I perform a wedding and say that wedding, I pronounce them husband and wife. Do I not? Is that the end of their life? Some of you would say yes. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, preach it, Jim. Yeah. No, that's not the end of their life. The moment they become one, joined together, doesn't that start a whole new adventure? It's a wedding. And you see, we're part of a big story. But when we go into eternity, and we're at the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, it starts a whole new vast experience throughout eternity, does it not? It doesn't end the moment we get there. It gets even better and better, and we're part of this big story. So, that's my introduction. You ready for John? Yeah. Okay, good, I am too. Okay, here we go. John 1.1. 1, 1. 
In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. You ever read that and your mind kind of gets off balance just looking at it? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, when John uses that word, word, it's the word logos, great, great word. It's, it's the idea of an uncreated divine mind that gives order and meaning to the universe. He does borrow that word from the Greeks, no doubt, because it's a Greek language that's written in. He borrows it. But he's actually saying that what the Greeks theorized about a creator giving divine order and meaning to a universe, he's saying, you are correct in that. Because there is a divine mind that put everything together. Now, when he says there, in the beginning was the word, don't make any mistakes on that. It simply means the word already was. Say that with me. The word already was. So, he's creating everything in verse 3, and the word already was. Now, just so, for the sake of some of you longtime Christians, but allow me at times to make sure everybody understands what this is. For the sake of the newer Christians, I won't get there for two weeks, but let me look at it right now. Look at verse 14 in that same chapter. So we know, gives definition to who this word is. It says in verse 14, And the word became, ah, the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In two weeks, we're going to have so much fun with that verse I'm going to spend the whole night just on that verse. I mean, yeah, I know it's crazy, but I'm going to do that. So when you read that, it tells you who this word is. Since the word became flesh then, who is the word? It's none other than Jesus Christ. John is telling you, I'm telling you, the word is Jesus Christ. So now, he's saying this. When you put verse 1 and verse 14 together, he is saying that Jesus himself never had a beginning. He always was, correct? And the Gospel of John is going to show you all through it the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Now, watch this. Turn, always keep your finger here. Turn to John 17. Now watch. This is Jesus praying. It's one of his longest prayer. And he's praying as he walks to uh, the Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to be arrested and he's going to be taken. He's going to be crucified the next morning. But there are a lot of beautiful statements when we get there that we're going to dissect. But let me show you one right now that fits with what we're saying currently. In verse 3 of John 17, 3, 4, 5, he says, This is eternal life. He's talking to the Father. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Don't you want to say that when you see Jesus? I accomplished the thing you gave me to do. Verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now watch this. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. What did Jesus just tell us? He's always existed. He was there with the Father. He did not have an actual beginning. He is eternal. He is God, is what he's telling us 
in that moment from the words of Jesus himself. Now back to John 1.1. He says, Jesus is saying now, this word was with God and was God. Now the first thing you don't want to do is take that to mean that there are many, many gods. It's not what it means. The Bible teaches there are only how many gods? One. In how many persons? There's three persons in one Godhead. Now, my, this, this, my son Dylan, who now realizes he's a theologian type, and now he's, he's going back to school because he knows what he is, going back for all of his, he wants to go all the way for his doctorate in biblical studies. And so, and he thinks he's smarter than me already, so. <laughs> this drives him crazy. What we call the Trinity? He'll go, oh, I, I'm, I'm racking my brain to try to explain this. And I'm sitting there going, I gave up a long time ago. Because it's just, look, are you a complex individual? Say yes, please. Is God a complex individual? Way more than you are? You better believe it. I, I can't explain Three persons, one God. But I can show you in Scripture. I can show you at the baptism. You have the Father speaking. You have Jesus, the Son, in the water. You have the Spirit of God coming down as a dove. I can show you in Scripture from John 2, Acts 10, Romans 8, that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and that Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. And then I can take you to Isaiah you know, chapters like 42 to 48, and you'll find all over those chapters, Isaiah repeatedly says, there's only one God, one God, one God, one God. So I take those truths, which in my mind, they don't fit, but it is true. When I was in college a thousand years ago, my theology professor, he called it a certain theological phrase, and he said, it will not make sense to you right now. But when you get to heaven and you're in the presence of God and you know as you've been known, it will make perfect sense. But you're not going to be able to get this finite God and understand everything about him in a little finite brain. And for some people that just wrecks their brain. They, they go crazy with it like my son. Now, <clears throat> here's what I like about this whole idea. In the beginning was the word and the word is with God and the word was God. Okay. I've been over to some of your homes, you know, for whatever it was, and, you know, I, I walk in and I check what DVDs you have and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sure if I've ever been to some, it's not your home, but some people, they probably hide everything when I come home. It's like, you don't have to hide anything. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm good. But, well, come over there, whatever it is, if there's a gathering of people from church, and, and typically, not exclusively, but typically, you know, you might, there's a couple married and they have kids running around. Now, in that home with the husband, wife, and the kids, is that a fellowship? Say yes. When my wife and I come into that home, have they invited me into their fellowship? Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Think about this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Is God a fellowship within Himself? Yes. Oh, look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Even to those who, there's the word again, the who, who what? Believe in his name. Now, is God a fellowship? Say yes. Does he invite anyone to jump into that fellowship with him? You better believe it. All of a sudden, God is a fellowship 
in verse 1, and by verse 12, you find out that God invites any human, any person, to jump into the fellowship with him. Hold your finger there, turn to Genesis 1. Watch this, just to confirm that, uh, one of many places. But let me show you this one. Genesis 1, at the dawn of creation of humanity. Watch this. In verse, look at verse 26. When you're there, say, I'm there. Genesis is right before Revelation, in case you're looking for that. So, no, Genesis is the very first letter of the Old Testament, right at the beginning. Now watch what God says. Then God said, let, say it, us. Is that a fellowship of people? Three persons, one God, right? Let us. Have you ever noticed that before? Now watch this. Let us make man in, what's the next word? Our. There it is again. Our. Three persons, one God. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule, etc., etc. Now, God now, we see, is a fellowship again. And then he creates mankind so that man can jump into that fellowship of God. You see that right there? Of course, Adam broke that fellowship when he sinned. But, make no mistake about it, the creator of the universe wants fellowship with you. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? With you. Wants to know you. Wants you to know him. And make no mistake about it, God wasn't lonely and created humans and said, well, I, I just wish I had somebody to talk to. No. God's a fellowship in himself. He's not lonely. Now, can I, let me give you one more thing Back to John 1 again. One more thing before I move out of John 1. <clears throat> Jesus is described in John 1, 1 as the what? Louder, as the what? As the word. That makes sense. Because in Genesis 1, all of creation is a result of God's speech acts. Is it not? God speaks, and God said, and God said, and God said. Ah, that makes perfect sense. So it makes sense that Jesus would be the Word. Does it not? Does it not? Okay, hold your finger here. Now watch this, showing the movement of speech and God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Way to your right, way to your right. Hebrews 1, at the very beginning of, of Hebrews Staying on the idea of speech acts. He's the word. Speech acts create everything. Speech acts by God, I should say. Look at Hebrews 1, 1. Real quick, then we'll jet back. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. God, after he what? Spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days has what? Spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He's the creator, and the creator spoke. He spoke, and he speaks to us, and he spoke things into existence. Jesus was the, is the creator, and it makes sense that as the word, well, he speaks everything into existence. Now back to, to John 1. Now watch this. <clears throat> Verses 2 and 3. It says, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, say it, nothing came into being that has come into being. 
You know what this answers? The question of why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there something instead of nothing? Now, we have been covering this stuff on Sunday mornings in the series answers currently. If you've not been here for that, I just need to make some quick statements. The rest of you, it's good rehearsal again for you. Just quick statements. It's the cosmological argument. Everything uh, that had a beginning had a cause. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had a cause. It was caused because it had a beginning. You see, it had to be a, a, a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, all-powerful mind that made everything from nothing. We call that God. That's the cosmological argument. <clears throat> we already know, as I shared with you, that scientists, not Christians, but just scientists, have now discovered, and some of them have won Nobel Prizes for this, They've proven that the universe had a beginning. There was a moment in time where time began, where there was nothing, and all of a sudden, boom, it was created. That's a proven fact these days. Now, if you ever get into a dialogue with people over this, most of you probably will never. I like these kind of dialogues, okay? But... You may never. So I'm going to run through some things that I've shared with you before about this. Since they know now that this thing had a beginning, they've come up with other theories and they're stretching to try to make it sound like it wasn't a creator that created it. I shared with you that Stephen Hawking, in his book, one of his books, he says that since we have gravity, therefore gravity could create everything out of nothing. Question is, that you'll ask him is, is gravity something or is it nothing? Gravity is something. So therefore, then you ask, then who created gravity? Remember that? They will also take you down this idea of this quantum vacuum. Oh, there's a quantum vacuum, particles fluctuating in and out, and that could have created everything that we see from nothing. And then you ask the question, okay, then who created the quantum vacuum, right? It had, had to come from somewhere. And then two, three weeks ago, I shared with you one of the big theories now, and that is like in Spider-Man, No Way Home, the multiverse, remember that one? Now they theorize that there are an, an innumerable, they can't prove it, an innumerable amount of universes out there, and our universe just happened to be the one that got hit perfect, and so here we are. So the question is, okay, let's say that's true. Can't prove it. So my question is, then who created all the universes, right? Always ask the question because they're throwing you for a loop, but they're not, they're evading the main issue. Something had to have created those. It's a cosmological argument. Everything had a beginning and had a cause. Universe had a beginning, therefore the universe had a cause. Now, look at verse 3 again. It says in there, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now think. You got somebody on the rope. You're talking to them. I shouldn't say on the ropes. You're just trying to share with them. And they may ask you, okay, then who created your creator? They just ask you that question. How would you answer that question? 
Who created your creator? Here's how I would answer it. I don't believe in created gods. Because what do we call a created God? It's a what? It's an idol. And we don't believe in idols. Always remember, these little tricky questions, there's very simple answers to those questions if you just listen to what they're saying. You see, and you could even flip the question on them. And when they say something like that, you, you turn on them and you say, do you believe the universe created you? Yes. Then say, then who created your creator? See how you can flip it on them? Make them answer the question. Why should you answer the question? You already know the answer that God created all things. Now, <clears throat> you know what the coolest thing about verse 3 is? The coolest thing about verse 3 is, is that the universe and everything we see is not the ultimate reality. What is the ultimate reality? God. God is the ultimate reality because He created everything. Therefore, the universe is not the ultimate reality. Now, verse 4 and verse 5. Now, here we go. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, think of the parallels as John writes this, the parallels back with Genesis 1. Notice the words light and life. In Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, right? And then after that, he gets a certain day, three, four, he says, then he says, and God said, and not only is there light now, now he says, let there be life. Let the land animals come. So there's light and there's life. Do you see that? So John says, light and life. And in Genesis, you find light and you find life. Now, as you think about that, aren't light and life in the Gospel of John divine titles of Jesus? Didn't he say, I'm the light of the world? Yeah. And didn't he say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? Light and life. They're the, 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 the divine titles. <clears throat> now, he says, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness don't get it. Darkness don't get it. They can't comprehend it. I remember when I didn't comprehend it. You remember when you didn't comprehend it, right? Now let me give you four statements on this right here. Applications. What does this mean to us? First, it means that the world is not going to understand you. Have you noticed that yet? It's just not going to understand you. Because you and I, according to Peter in 1 Peter 2.11, we're strangers and we are aliens in this world. They just won't get us. Let me give you an illustration of that. Happened about two, three months before Olivia and I got married. This is my favorite illustration on this one. I was a correctional officer working at Chino Prison East Facility. Um, that's where I met some of you. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> it's a joke, okay? It's a joke. Um, but I'm sitting there, and you work, two people work a unit. And this one guy, he found out I was getting married. And he says this to me. He goes, I bet she's good in bed, huh? I said, well, I don't know. He goes, what do you mean you don't know? I said, well, we've never had sex. What are you talking about? What do you mean? I go, well, we've never had sex. We're Christians. Come on. You, really? Yeah, really. Really. And then he says, 
come on, no, come on. I go, no, really. See, he could not believe that a 25-year-old guy who got saved at 23 decided, uh-uh, I'm staying this way, I'm staying now the way I am, and I'm going to save myself. I'm, gonna, I'm not, we're, Olivia and I, we're not going to have sex. We're not going to do that. The world's not going to get us. Any amens? I was in the sociology class back in like 89, 90, and the sociology teacher, as liberal as it gets, he's saying about some of you here, who here believes that sex is wrong before marriage? I raised my hand up. There's like 60 people in the class. I'm the only one. And I said, I don't believe it's right because God says it's wrong. And I just stood up. I'm not going to back down. And I've told you this before. And then after class, like three Christians in the class come and say, oh, thank you for saying that. I'm going, and where were you, where were you in the class? I'm by myself? You leave me hanging here, man? I couldn't believe it. But let me tell you, the world is not going to get you. The world will not comprehend why you are the way you are until, you become, until they become a Christian and the Spirit of God comes in them and then they understand it, right? So don't expect them to understand you. They're not going to. Now, the second thing I want to say about them not comprehending is every human, or I should say about light and life, every human is accountable to God. Are they not? Now, this Sunday, in five days, I'm going to talk about why would a loving God send people to hell? That's going to be a hot one, right? So I'm only going to dot this a little bit because I don't want to give you too much. And you can say, well, I have to go after all. No. Now, 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 now look at... Look, <laughs> I'm not a dummy, okay? Look at Romans 1. Two, the, two books to the right, as you're learning your scriptures, some of you, which I'm so thankful for. Two letters to the right. John, then Acts, then Romans. Now, watch this. Every human is accountable to God. Mm. Now, look at verse 18, 19. It says... Um, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress what? The truth and unrighteousness. Do people know what the truth is? Yes, they suppress it. They push it down. And that's why when you share the truth with them, some of them get so angry because they're trying to keep that truth suppressed. But it's coming up. It's coming up. And when you see that happen, just know that's what's going on now. But look at verse 19. Why, why all this? Because... That which is known about God is evident where? Within them. For God made it evident to them. Do people know inside there's a God? Yes, even the atheists. They just suppress the truth. This is what Paul is writing. The absolute truth of God's word. So, <clears throat> every human shows the truth of God's law written in their heart. That's why every person is accountable to God. Okay, that's why an atheist can be one of the most moral people around. Did you hear what I said? Because God has placed truth in them. They can be very moral people. They can just choose not to believe in God. So never think that an atheist is, a, is automatically immoral. That doesn't, no, not necessarily so. They can be very moral people. Now, the third thing I want to say is this about that verse in John. There's an unwillingness to believe and to comprehend. See, they did not comprehend it. He brought light, brought life. They don't comprehend. Look at John chapter 8. We'll get there eventually, but look at it really quickly right now. Watch Jesus in his big debate with the Pharisees, and he really lays down the hammer on these people. They're unwilling to believe. They're unwilling to comprehend the truth. In John 8, look at verses 44 to 47. Watch this. 
Jesus speaking to him. Now, can you imagine you and I saying this to somebody? This is so cool. But Jesus, you know, and he says it with right attitude. He says, you're of your father, the devil. How many know right there that it's fight time right now? And he says, and you want to do the desires of your father. And he's speaking this to the religious leaders. The ones who are supposed to be godly. And he says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. For there is no truth in him. Did he lie to Eve at the get-go? From the beginning he lied. Whenever he speaks a lie, I'm talking about the devil speaking to the serpent. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 45, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He's hammering down on these guys. Verse 47, for who is of God, I'm sorry, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. He's speaking the truth, but they just refuse to comprehend the truth. We were all there. I remember when I didn't comprehend it. It only comes by an act of the grace of God coming into a person's life and the Spirit of God that your eyes open up. Amen? The natural man does not, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 10-14. Cannot understand it. It's an impossibility for them. They can't comprehend these things. And now, the last thing I want to drive home is this tonight. The fourth statement of, based on that John 1 verse. Every one of us can have a deeper, fuller knowledge of God the Father. Okay. In John 1, 1, this logic. In John 1, 1, Jesus, who is Jesus with? The Father. The Father, right? Okay. So Jesus is with the Father. One day, um, Jesus says, you know the way I'm going. And you go, I don't know where you're going. And he finally comes to the statement and Jesus says in John 14, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is a huge statement. You'll, we'll see more of this later on in John 1. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, do you hear me say on Sunday mornings of people who just get saved, stay in the New Testament? Stay in the gospel, stay in there? You know why that is? Learn about Jesus, the one you put your faith in. But there's a specific to it. Because if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Okay. That means that you and I can enter into a deeper, fuller, richer understanding and knowledge of the Father by doing what we're doing now. By spending time in prayer. By coming alongside other believers in fellowship. You can grow deeper in knowledge of God the Father by spending time with Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so, I performed the two funerals, independent funerals, of that tragic car accident that on one side was my third cousin who passed away at the scene. On the other side was my nephew on Olivia's side that passed away six days later. 
I, I did both funerals. And um, we had the, the one here, the first one we had here of my nephew on Olivia's side. And Megan, who you know Megan at the front desk, right? Megan, she, she comes in, and you know Megan. Oh, Megan, when they high you know Megan. <laughs> you always know when Megan's coming, okay. And, and she, she, she said, oh my gosh, I knew when this woman and this, when they walked in, I knew those are Olivia's sisters. Those of you don't know, Olivia's my wife. I go, you did? She goes, they look exactly alike. Now, I don't think they do. But she goes, oh, they look exactly alike. There's such a resemblance between the three of them. That's exactly what Jesus said. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's exact resemblance. If you know Jesus, if you learn about him and you grow in him, you learn about the Father. It's just that simple. That's why you keep drawn to Jesus. Keep drawn to Jesus. Keep drawn to Jesus. And you know what the Father's all about. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you, Lord, for um, our time that we've had together. I really enjoy this. We thank you, Lord God, for your goodness to us. This is the opportunity to jump into the fellowship of the three persons of the Godhead. We're invited in. It's incredible. To know that we know that we know that you created all things and that you're bringing light and life to our lives. Thank you for bringing us into the light that we can comprehend these things and we can know you, Jesus, and thus know the Father. I, it's so especially um, um, sweet for anybody here that's never had a father in their life. You can know the father. What a beautiful thing. And we thank you for that, Lord. I pray your blessings on everyone here tonight. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.